what glorious things we get to sing back to God on uh, Sunday mornings when we worship together. I hope these words come from your heart. I hope that the, the hope of the resurrection of the body is very much a part of your daily life and very much a part of your Christian experience. You know, one of the, the greatest joys of, of Easter, Resurrection Sunday, the time of celebrating the atonement and Christ's resurrection, is that the resurrection of Jesus is not some abstract, distant, uh, doctrinal reality, but it is, it is eminently practical to us as we struggle with sin, as we struggle with hardships, as we go through this life and are tempted to hope in created things and, and to find our identity in this world and in our own pride. The resurrection tells us that there is a life to come and that in Christ we will live forever with him That's the centerpiece of our faith, and so I I pray that that's a reality for you as you sit here this morning. Undoubtedly, uh, I would imagine it's the case that some of us here this morning don't know Christ. Uh, Maybe you you think up to now that that you have, but the resurrection is not something you hope in. And my prayer for you today is that you'll open your heart, you'll ask God to be merciful to you, that you'll ask God to speak today through his word, and that Christ will become real to you in a way he's never been before. And in fact, that's the prayer of all of us, not just those who are here who don't know Christ, but every person, that Christ will become real, beautiful, that he will become a treasure to each of us. So turn with me, if you will, as we get started today, turn with me to Genesis 1, 26 to 31. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. Today, we near the end of our study of the six days of creation. So just as we had with the Sermon on the Mount, you know, it's kind of a little series within the series, and then series within the series within the series, you know, that kind of thing. And that's sort of what's going on here, is we're looking at Genesis, it's our series, it's a larger series, but then within that, we're looking at creation, and then within creation, we're looking at specifically now the six days of creation. And so we're nearing the end of our study of these six days, which stretch all the way from verse 3 to 31 of chapter 1 of Genesis. And I think we could use four words to summarize what we see in this larger section. So if you want to tie together with just four words or a few words what it is we're, we're seeing from verse 3 all the way to verse 31, I think it's these, reversing, forming, filling, and culminating. Let me just take a moment to explain what I mean by each of those. So reversing, what I mean by that is that in Genesis 1 verse 2, we're told that the earth was formless and void. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And so when we come to the first day of creation, we have a reversal. Darkness, formlessness, emptiness reversed. And so as we look at the six days, we can't help but to see this first truth, that we're reversing. God is reversing what we have in verse 2. The second word is forming. So the first three days, God forms spheres and spaces and locations within which he will then fill. And so that leads to the third word, filling. So in the first three days, God is forming the sky and he's forming the sea and he's forming the land, productive land. He's forming all of that. And then we see him filling those spaces in days four to six. And then at the end of the sixth day, we get the culminating And that's what we come to today. Reversing, forming, filling, culminating. So how do we know that we are hitting a high point today? How do we know that we are hitting a climax when we get to verses 26 to 31? Well, there are two features that stand out, and I think they act as brackets. Now, when you get into the details, it's very clear. Why verses 26 to 31 are a climax. Why, when we come to these verses, we're culminating. But 
I want you to see just two features in particular, one at the beginning in verse 26 and one at the end in verse 31 that tell us very clearly that verses 26 to 31 should be treated as a section and is itself a climax. So at the beginning, verse 26, we get a transition from this language, let there be or let the dot, dot, dot. We get a transition from that to this language, let us, let us. So let me kind of show you what I mean by that. Go to verse three. We're just gonna glance really quickly through this. So verse three, and God said, let there be light. Jump down to verse six. God said, let there be an expanse. Verse nine, God said, let the waters. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights, verse 20, and God said, let the waters, verse 24, and God said, let the earth, verse 26, then God said, let us. There's a change, a dramatic shift takes place in the language of the text when you come to verse 26. We have in verse 26, divine deliberation, or what has been called by some divine consultation. Here we have God, who's been introduced to us in the very first verse, in the beginning God created, and we have his spirit, who's introduced to us in verse two, he's hovering over the waters, and then we have his word, or his wisdom, as Proverbs eight tells us, that wisdom was there with God when he was making all things, and as John tells us, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, the word was God, and all things were created through him. He is God's word, his wisdom, So we have God, his word, and his spirit together consulting, deliberating, let us make, let us make. That tells us that something special is about to happen. Here we have a direct creation by God in deliberation. It's incredible. So that's at the beginning, there's a front bracket, and then an end bracket at verse 31, a transition from good all along at the end of each day of creation, except for day two, we get the language of good. God saw that it was good, and it was good, and it was good, it was good. And then we get to verse 31, and it says, very good. What that tells us is that only after this final creation or creature will God declare his work to be very good. It's not very good until this creature is on the earth. So what is this creature? What is this final creation in the latter part of day six? Or as the early church father, John Chrysostom, asked over 1,600 years ago, who on earth is this creature now being made whose making required in the creator such planning and care. The name given to this creature is man, or mankind, or human. And at this point, I think we face a temptation. We all do this. When we come to a text like verse 26, this is the temptation for the preacher, for the Bible reader, for the interpreter. This is the temptation across the board. We come to a verse like verse 26 or a passage like 26 to 31, and we face the temptation to immediately begin to pull in everything that we know about human beings. We just sort of skip over the text or the text becomes a bit like a trampoline. And with something so important and something we're so seemingly familiar with, we read it and bounce off of it to other parts of the Bible or to other things that we know or to our philosophy of mankind or whatever else. We, we bounce off of it. But I think a better approach for us is to stick very close to this text before us and to let this text, to let it become the foundation for everything else we will go on to read in the rest of the Bible. Why? Well, this is man's grand introduction. This is your grand introduction. You were born, you have a birthday, but your nature came to exist here on day six, 
This is man's grand introduction, his beginning, his first mention in all of the Bible. This means that anything else we could possibly go on to say about human beings, anything throughout all of the Bible, this is Genesis chapter 1, all the way to the end of Revelation, anything that we could infer from the Bible about human beings, anything that nature might tell us about human beings, all of it, their nature, their purpose, their destiny, ultimately comes back to these verses. And I would say that it is human failure to learn from these verses that has given rise to so many of the problems that we face in our world today. These verses, the truth of this, of, of this section of Scripture has been ignored and neglected and rejected, and so many of the problems that we face in our world today stem from a lack of understanding and application of these verses. So let's take a look. Go ahead and stand with me, if you will. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. This is the word of God. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. You can go ahead and be seated. <coughs> Let's ask the Lord for his help this morning to understand his word and that he would be so gracious as to open our hearts, that he would be so gracious as to shine upon our hearts his truth, that he would be so gracious as to apply it to our lives that we actually leave here different, differently than we came in. Because apart from him, we have no hope. We have nothing. So let's ask. Our God and our Father, our Creator, Lord God, we are so humbled by the beauty of your word and the fact that you would be so merciful as to expose us to it. Father, how lost we would be without your word. And yet, how often we neglect it. Would you forgive us, Father, for the disuse in our lives of the Bible? Would you forgive us, Father, for failing to meditate upon it and failing to see Christ lifted up in it. Father, would you help us to see through it to you today that we would see you glorified through your word, that we would see you as creator of man in a new way. Father, that you would make these truths applicable to our hearts. We know that your spirit alone can do that in his own special, unique, incisive way. And so, Father, we ask that he would do these things. We thank you for each other. Father, we thank you that we have brothers and sisters in this family of God. We thank you that you have ministered to each of us through your people. 
And even now we have some difficult situations going on in our church and, and how these individuals bear witness to the love of your people. Father, what a, what a testimony to your love. For apart from that, we would not love each other at all. We would be haters of men, haters of God. But Father, we thank you that by your grace and by your spirit, we've been transformed to love you and love our neighbor. And Father, we pray that that would continue to grow in our lives, that as we sit under your word, that we would love you more and we would love others more. Father, thank you for the time we get together today. Be glorified and edify each of us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title for the sermon this morning is Days 4 to 6, Fullness Towards Dominion, Part 2. So last week, we looked at the creation. Remember, we, we, we had the first three days God is forming and the last three days God is filling. Well, I want you to keep that structure very much in your minds. So I've grouped this sermon underneath that one so as to communicate to you that what we've got is a forming on the first three days, a filling on the latter three days, and that as part of that filling, we have man being created towards the end of day six. And what I want us to do today is to see five foundational truths about these human beings made on day six. You can go ahead with that next slide, if you will, Kevin. Five foundational truths about human beings who were made on day six. These are five foundational truths about us today as we live and move and have our being. So what we're going to do today is we'll cover the first three of these that I have listed up there, and then we will look at the latter two next week and kind of uh, finish off our, our treatment of the creation of human beings. So the five truths, foundational truths, that I think we see in this text are these. Number one, we resemble. Number two, we represent. Number three, we relate. Number four, we reproduce. And number five, we rely. These are the truths that kind of come out from the text, and today we will look at resemble, represent, and Relate, And what I want to do today is a little different than normal. And so I want you to stick with me, if you will. What we're going to do is I'm going to take time to just explain what is meant by each of these first three. So I'm going to try to understand what does it mean that we resemble, we represent, we relate. Let's, let's just try to grasp the meaning of each of those as they come up from the text. And then what I'll do at the very end of the sermon is have a period of time where we begin to look at the implications for us. So less kind of implying and applying along the way and more doing that at the end after we treat each of these three. So just kind of bear with me. We're going to dig in. And one of the things I will say about a passage like this is that it is, it is truly like a diamond. This is one of the most important passages in the entire Bible, literally. And it shines forth with all kinds of truths and implications. And you could spend uh, many, many, many weeks, months, years looking at a passage like this. So we're, what we're going to try to do is just capture the essence of it. Look at it as in the, in the big picture, kind of in a big picture kind of way, and then begin to flesh out some of the implications for us as human beings. So the first truth is that we resemble. One of the most foundational pillars of the Christian worldview is that human beings are made in the image of God. This may for you be a bit of a cliche, made in the image of God. It's something, it's something that we say often, we hear it often. It's just kind of in the air that we breathe, and rightly so. It is absolutely essential for constructing a Christian worldview. In fact, as we are teaching our children and raising them up, it is one of those first key truths that every child needs to know. We are made in God's image. So much of the weight of the Bible is built on top of that doctrine, that notion. And we first encounter this idea here in Genesis 1:26, where this idea is first mentioned. It says this, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Unless you think that, uh, that it's just men and not women who are made in God's image. He goes on in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. 
male and female. He created them. So every man and every woman, every male and every female made in the image of God. Notice there are two, two categories, two, male and female. We're not talking about a gender spectrum here. We're talking about two categories, and we'll get more to that next week when we talk about reproduction that we reproduce. But we see here male and female, man and woman made in the image of God. This language of image and likeness is also used of the relationship between Adam and his son Seth in Genesis chapter 5 verse 3. This is very interesting. As you chase through this idea of image and likeness, uh, which are kind of parallel ideas, they're basically the saying the same thing. Again, Hebrew parallelism where the, the second thing reiterates the first thing. It's just two ways of expressing the same truth. We find this idea rippling out through the pages of scripture. And one of the places we come to it is in chapter 5, verse 3, and this is what it says. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And this, of course, tells us that at the most basic level, and there's much debate I think some of it is a little bit tedious and maybe misses the bigger picture, but there's much debate on what does it mean that we're made in the image of God? Well, I think at the most basic level, and especially in light of Genesis 5, 3, we must say that humans, unlike the creatures created so far, resemble God. Just at the most basic level, we resemble God unlike everything that's been made up to this point. Unlike the inanimate world, Unlike the plants that rise up from the earth, unlike the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, and the stars, unlike the, the creatures of the sea, the birds of the heavens or of the sky, and the, the animals that live on the earth, unlike all of those things, this creation resembles God at the most basic level. And since we are told in John chapter 4 verse 24 that God is spirit, God is not a man sitting up there, and we understand Christ incarnate, that God-man is sitting up there, wherever up there is. But God is not corporeal. He does not have a body. He is immaterial. God is spirit. Jesus tells us that in four, John 4, 24. God is spirit, so we must worship him. He must be worshiped in spirit and truth. So since this is the case, we understand that man's resemblance to God must be spiritual in nature. Now, this is one of the interesting things about it, though, is that man cannot be detached from his body. So we see that a theology of the human body is very important as we read through the Bible because man is body and soul composite. So while it is true Man being made in God's image is a spiritual resemblance. It's a spiritual likeness. Man's soul, we still see that in man's, even his, his physical frame. One of the things that's very interesting is that man walks upright. His eyes are in the front and he looks out. He can look up to heaven to worship God. He can look out to his neighbor to seek his good. And he can look down over the earth that he rules. And we'll talk about that. In a moment. But the resemblance must be primarily, or it must be understood in spiritual terms. So, how are we like God? How do we resemble God in our human nature? Well, from the context, I think there are two overarching answers. And, and here's the thing we could go on and on about the attributes that man has that are the same as the attributes that God has. And we could talk about all sorts of things. And we could sit here and, and go through all of these various points. But what I want to do is just look at the context. And I think there are two overarching things that we share with God, two ways that we resemble him in our nature. And here are the two words that we're gonna look at. Mind and morality. Those are, I think, the two overarching ways that we resemble God in terms of mind and morality. So let's look first at mind. God is an intelligence. It's where we get the idea of intelligent design. 
God is mind. That's why we have DNA. DNA is a language. It comes from a mind. It comes from an intelligence. He thinks, if we just look at chapter one, so you get to this point in the narrative, yes, who is this God? Who, who is this God who has revealed himself from Genesis 1-1 on? Let's say you're just reading through this narrative. What would be your impression of this God? Well, what are we told about him? He thinks, he purposes, he classifies, he organizes, he discerns, he distinguishes. And in verse 26, he deliberates. This is a thinking God. He is a mind. He is an intelligence. Just as God intelligently and wisely names things, it's one of the most outstanding features of Genesis chapter one. He names the earth. He names the seas. He names heaven. He names the heavens. He names the, from the very beginning, he names the sky, day and night. All of these things are named. And just as God wisely and intelligently does this, so too does man intelligently and wisely name the animals. Genesis 2.19 says this, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. It's interesting, there it even says that God brought them to man to see what he would name them. God just let go of it. He didn't name them. He gave them to man to name. And man, with his mind, with his wisdom and his intellect, his reason, his ability to distinguish and discern and to compile and analyze and so forth, was able to name them in accordance with their natures, in accordance with their ways of being. He gave them names, just as God had. Just as God intelligently and wisely forms and prepares the earth, so too Will man intelligently and wisely care for the garden? So in chapter 2, verse 15, it says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Just as God takes care of things, forms them, so too will man do that very same thing. How? With his mind. So mind is the first. The second word that I gave you for this as we resemble God in terms of morality. And what I mean by that is that God is a moral being. That means that he declares what is good and right and fitting. He is moral in his nature. And the fact that man receives a command from God in Genesis 2 verse 17 shows that he is likewise a moral being a person with a moral consciousness. So this is what it says in chapter two, verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. God gives them every tree in the garden except one. Don't eat from it, God says. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Do you know what that implies? That man with his mind was able to receive that command from God. He was able to understand good bad, right, wrong, true, false. He's a moral being. And we see in chapter three, as the serpent, as Satan comes to tempt Eve, we see that Satan is beginning to twist this reality. He's beginning to twist the moral reality that Eve has as he tempts her to partake of the fruit of this tree, which God commanded them not to. To eat. So man is mind and morality, and it is because we alone as humans resemble God in these ways, it's because of this that we alone are able to represent him in the world that he created. Do you see the logic there? Because we're like him, we can therefore represent him in the world that he created. And that's where we go to our second point, is that we represent, we resemble him, and we represent him. Immediately after saying that we are made in God's image or likeness, the text goes on to describe our role or our function. You think, human, human, what is it? Oftentimes we come to understand the nature of a thing by what it does. So something is, is, is called by a name that, it, that is extracted from what it is that, it, that we see it going about doing as we observe it and we watch it. That's where taxonomy and classification of things come from. We see it and we begin to put it together. 
as we watch it functioning out in the world. And we see something similar going on here with man. The second part of verse 30, uh, 26, it says, and let them, human beings, man and woman, them, notice them, not just man, them, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And again, in verse 28, we get it repeated. Look there. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here's the main point I want you to get at this stage. Human beings are described here as royal representatives. Get that in your mind. What is a human? A human is a royal representative of his or her maker. We represent God and his rule over all things. He is the sovereign creator, king over all, and he has entrusted all that he has made into the hands of his ruling representatives. Man, human, male and female. And notice that this rule is comprehensive. And this is amazing to me. As you read verse 26 and verse 28, in such a short space, and sometimes you can read through the, the uh, creation account and you can think, man, it's kind of repetitious. It's kind of repetitive. You know, we constantly see in the same words used over and over again. Well, here's one of the things that we should see in these verses. And that is that the text wants to make abundantly clear to us. The Holy Spirit, as he inspired Moses, wants to make very clear to God's people that human beings are over everything. It is comprehensive kind of language. It goes from the, from the water to the sky to the earth to the creatures on the earth down to the earth itself to the worms and spiders and ants down in the earth. All of it, the language is all of it. It's comprehensive. Is underneath man's dominion. It is comprehensive in its scope. And what that tells us, it's very interesting. It really does tell us that everything we've read in Genesis 1 is leading up to this point. Everything. All these spheres, all these creatures that fill these various spheres, all of it moving towards this point at which God can set it down and put man over top of all of it. So here we need to put I think two biblical ideas together, two key biblical truths. First, we come, first comes from Psalm 24.1. This is what Psalm 24.1 says. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. That's the first truth we need to make sure we have firmly in place. But then we go on to this second truth. And this comes from Psalm, Psalm 8, verses five to six. You have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Do you see that? Those two truths together. Truth number one, everything belongs to the Lord. The Lord made it. He owns it. It's his. But he has entrusted it to human beings. So we resemble God. And we represent God. But now we need to see the final aspect of what it means to be a special cre creation made in God's image. And that's where we come to our third point, our final point for today. And that is that we relate. So we resemble, we represent, and now we see that we relate. Any consideration whatsoever of human beings must begin with the fundamental truth that we are relational creatures by nature. Now, it's interesting. Some of us are highly relational. And my wife, in fact, is one of those. And some of us are maybe a little less relational. I think I tend in that direction, honestly. So some are, are a little bit more gregarious. Some are a little bit more people-oriented. Some are a little bit more talkative and just thrive in conversation, in groups. Just love that stuff. And that's the, the stuff life is made of. And some not so much. But here's the thing. 
This is not a matter of personality differences. This is not a matter of being relational or not being relational. It is in the essence of a human being to be relational. And to express that, of course, in your own way. To express that in a way that coheres with how God made us. But no one, no one gets a free pass here. No one can just say, well, you know, I'm not really relational. I'm kind of introverted. So therefore, I don't have to be relational. I get a free pass. Not the case. Because it is intrinsic to humanity to be relational. Some of us just have to work a little harder than others at this. But it is part of who we are. Our passage makes this clear in a number of ways. First, so I want you to see these. These are very important. I want you to see these little, these little evidences in the text that show us that we are relational by nature. Catch each of these, please. So the first of them is notice God's words in verse 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's fascinating. What does that tell us? It tells us that there is plurality within God. It's an incredible thing. Here we don't have a, a systematic uh, presentation of the Trinity. We have to let God's revelation progress among his people and the incarnation of his son before we come to understand fully what is going on here, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But what we must say is that there is plurality within God. There is community within God. God himself is an eternal communion of persons. It's an incredible thing. It's a really incredible thing. It's the one reason why we can declare, unlike other religions, even monotheistic religions, religions that believe in one God, it's the reason why we can declare that God is love and not need his creation. You see, if you say God is love, there's no community of persons within God, then you would have to say that God has always existed alongside of something to love. Well, what does he love? What does it even mean that God is love if he's just solitary, and no, unity but no plurality? What, how are we to understand that? But because God is an eternal community of persons, one God, three persons, he is love and has always expressed love. He's been relating Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for eternity. And here's what I want you to see. It is this God in whose image we are made. Do you get that? This God, this God who is himself intrinsically in his nature, a plurality of persons. That tells us that human beings likewise were made for loving relationships. Second, man or mankind is described as being male and female. Now we see similar language in chapter five, verses one and two. Listen to this a little later in Genesis. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Now listen to this. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man. Named them man when they were created. In other words, it's very interesting. When God conceives of Man, boop, he sees two people. He sees Adam and Eve. He sees male and female. Now, when we get to chapter two, we'll come to understand exactly how God went about creating man. We, we have in chapter two an expansion of this portion. So it'll be, I don't want to preach that now. It'll be very interesting when we get there to see that. We'll see how Adam came and then Eve came. But what we get in this narrative of creation in chapter one is very clear that God's intention all along was male and female, together man. And that too tells us that man was made to relate to someone else. God made them together and placed them in relationship with one another. We have the first marriage in Genesis chapter two where God brings Eve to Adam. And they are joined together there as one flesh. So third, so first, made in God's image, and he's a plurality within himself. And second, that God made them male and female. Third, look at the direct communication that takes place between God and man. This is, this is very interesting. 
Chapter one, verse 28, look at what it says. And God blessed them, and God said to them. Now, it would be easy just to sort of gloss over that. Well, of course, he's talking to them. God said to them. But I want you to notice something very interesting. Look at verse 22. Because we get language repeated here from verse 22. This is the second time it said, and God blessed them. He blessed the sea creatures when he made them. The first creatures on the earth, first living creatures. And look at what it says in verse 22. It's a small detail, but we need to see it. Verse 22, and God blessed them, saying. Verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them. And what that tells us is that we alone commune with this God. No eagle, no fish. No bear has ever communed with the living God, but we do. We pray, we listen, we obey him, we hear his voice through scripture, we communicate with this God. Man was made to hear God and to obey him. Man was made to be in relationship with God. See that, even with just that small word, Two, in one word in Hebrew, to them, there, together. It's an incredible thing. God has made us to know him. This is eternal life, to know God. Why are you going to heaven one day? To know God, to be with God. That's it. Not to play golf, not to throw frisbee, not to enjoy picnics, see waterfalls, ride dinosaurs, I don't know, whatever it is that you think in your mind. That's what my son, that's the image that he's got. He's gonna ride a T-Rex. But that's not heaven. I mean, I think a lot of those things are gonna happen in heaven. But that is not, that is not heaven. Heaven is being with God. It is knowing, and that's why Jesus says in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you that I may come back and get you and take you to be with me. So where I am, there you will be also. That is the end of man, to know God. Number four, finally, here as we consider relating, human beings made to relate. The procreation implies relationships between parents and their children. The procreation, which we get in, in, in verse 28, where it says he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That implies relationship. Do you see that? They're going to have children and they're going to have relationships with those children like God as father has relationships with us. You know, in Luke's genealogy, Adam is called the son of God. Just as God is a father to Adam, so too will Adam have children and Adam's descendants have children and all of us will have children and we will be a father to them. And this also implies, procreation implies relationships among the generations of Adam, among the people who will come from Adam and Eve Relationships are everywhere in this little passage, telling us that man was made to relate. So Genesis 1 tells us that man with his mind and moral consciousness is made to relate to God and others. And I think all of this brings us to the two great commandments. Luke 10, 27, what are the two great commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. All of that goes back to this passage. That's not just some you know, great new piece of, of, uh, of morality that Jesus came and dropped on his people. It goes all the way back to the very beginning because inherent in the creation account of human beings here, we have a man and a woman who know God and who love each other. That's why it's so catastrophic and so sad when, when the fall occurs and they are ashamed before each other, they have to get some clothes on. They're ashamed. And not only that, but they're blaming each other. It's an incredible, sad scene. Adam says it's her fault. She did it. It's a breakdown, vertically and horizontally, a tragedy of epic proportions. The two great commandments go back to Genesis 1, to love God, to love our neighbor. So we resemble, we represent, and we relate. 
So now we come to the implications. How do we take all of this? I think we have to take all three of them together as a little bit of a package, a little bit of a unit. And one of the things that you'll find if you read in a systematic theology is they'll talk about, uh, well, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And one of the things that I have found less convincing is how uh, some will, will go and say, well, it's, it's to be understood mainly in terms of our nature, that we, we're, we're like God and we have these attributes. Or some will say, well, no, it's in our function, our role, we oversee. And some will say, well, no, it's in, it's in the fact that we relate. And what I understand is that all of these are facets. These are all facets of understanding what it means to be made in the image of God. So what are the implications? There's, there's millions of implications, but I just want to draw us to some to begin to get into this text a little bit before we close this morning. So first, here we are called to education. How in the world do we have education in Genesis chapter one? If it is true that we are like God and that we are intellectual creatures, we are rational creatures with reason, then here we have the basis for all human education. Here, in Genesis chapter one, we are those who, like God, form and classify and think and reason and deliberate. We do this like God. This is the basis for why you send your kids to school, by the way. It's not just because somebody in the local government tells you you have to or because you just know that's what everybody else does. Why are you educating your children? Why are you sending them to school, public or private? Why do you homeschool them every day? Because of this, because of who they are, because of the one in whose image they are made. Education is a glorious thing. It is a wonderful thing because God's image is a glorious thing. It is a wonderful thing. And it is in man to think, to use his mind for the glory of God. God, the greatest advances, many of the greatest advances have been by those who knew that their minds were solely Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. Here we are called to science and technology, I think. Essentially, we understand science to be the observations, our ability to observe rightly and to, and to draw conclusions from the natural world. And technology is a derivative of science that through that we are able to make airplanes and cell phones and MRI machines and everything else that are so useful to the flourishing of human beings. Where does all that begin? It begins here in Genesis chapter one as we are those who have dominion over the earth and who have reason. We are those who, who observe what we see. We subdue the earth. We have dominion over it and it is through that that we create various technologies to make the lives of people better, to decrease human suffering, to flourish on the earth. I think here we are called to care for the environment. And not, some, not in some extreme pantheistic way where plants are, are put on the same level as man uh, or man is de decreased to you know, just, a, just another animal. Those kinds of radical expressions of environmentalism are anti-Christian. They don't line up with our worldview. But we are to understand that we should care for what God has entrusted to us. And that has all kinds of implications for, for everything from recycling to how we, how we go about doing big things in the world. Nations. It has all kinds of implications. I, I watched a video clip this week from John Piper talking a little bit about environmental care. And he makes a great point. He says, of course, we should care for the environment. God's entrusted to us. We have dominion over it. We subdue it. But here's an interesting thing he said. He said, but the primary reason we care for the environment is because we love our neighbor. That's interesting. Have you ever thought about that? that the, the, it's not because there's a mother earth, he says, or not because we, we have this, this view, of, this small view of man, which is in our world everywhere, this small view of man and this lofty view of nature and its processes, and man is just a part of it, thrown in the mix, evolved from slime, come up in it. He's just a part, a destructive part. But the reason why we care for this earth that God will remake one day, it's groaning and God will remake it, is because we love people who will drink, as he says, bad water. We love people who will be harmed by our neglect of what's been entrusted to our care. This is a Christian way of seeing the created world, 
Not a pantheistic way. Not a pagan way. Not a secular way. But a Christian way to view the world we have dominion over. Here we are called to love and relate to all people. This goes all the way from family interaction to foreign policy. Think about it. It's incredible that, that here we have the very foundations of nation states. As nations think about how to treat the people in other nations, everything from how you speak to your children and what you do for your spouse all the way to foreign policy found here, condensed for us in this little passage. Acts chapter 17, verse 26, and God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You're related to every human being who has ever lived. That's incredible. This is not a delegitimizing of nations. This is not a delegitimizing of just war. This is not a delegitimizing of various ways that we distinguish ourselves. But it is to say that we are all people and we should love others in light of this and relate to them in light of this. James chapter three, verse nine says, with our tongue we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. That's incredible. We will, we will come in here, we will lift our hands and we will praise God and then we will go out and gossip and slander and tear down our neighbor. James says, that's foolish. That's foolish. It's not of God. Here we are called away from any behavior or viewpoint that fails to recognize the universal dignity of human beings and human life. This would go for racism. Abortion and euthanasia, human trafficking, murder, rape, sexual exploitation, all of these things, obviously, we would say, run contrary to what we find here in Scripture. But I would argue that this also concerns a failure to apply justice when murder occurs. In fact, there are only a handful of places in all of the Bible where the image of God is mentioned one of those is in Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. Maybe this is less a political issue and more of a theological issue. Murder and failure to apply justice when murder occurs. All of these things fall short of seeing the great glory and dignity that is man made in the image of the eternal, infinite, glorious creator, God. I want to finish this morning with two final implications. As we think about these three, we resemble, we represent, we relate, two final implications that I think are incredibly important. The first of those is to look and beware. I think that a passage like this tells us that we are called to look and beware. What do I mean by that? Well, human beings are the greatest pointer and the greatest temptation. Let me explain that. There is absolutely nothing in the creation that points to God like a human being. Nothing. Not even the stars. The stars are nothing compared to human beings. That's an incredible thing. Because we look up at the stars, as I said last week, and we see them and we consider our own smallness, and we should. But at the same time, we consider that those stars mean comparably nothing to God in comparison to human beings. Human beings are the greatest pointer in all of God's creation to God. In man, his interworkings, in his soul, in his thinking, in his doing, he is the greatest picture of God that exists in the physical world world. But that forces us to beware. Why? Because since man is the greatest pointer to God, man also becomes the greatest temptation for idolatry. He's the one thing that points to God most, and therefore it is man who occupies the worship of other men. In the ancient world, many men were worshipped. Pharaoh was worshipped. 
These demigod kind of people like Hercules were worshipped. The gods were made in the images of men, great men of old. We get this idea in Genesis chapter 6. These heroes, these great men of old, worshipped, adored. Perhaps you got people that you worship. You just wouldn't say it, but you've got some people that you're quite fond of. And maybe it's even your children or your spouse. We worship people and we worship ourselves. I want to read you a quote from Peter Adkins, who was formerly professor of chemistry at Oxford. He's an atheist. I want you to hear the idolatry and what he says. This is quoted from John Lennox's book, uh, God's Undertaker. Has Science Buried God, I think is the uh, subtitle. Here's what he says. <clears throat> Listen to the worship of man. Science and religion cannot be reconciled. And humanity should begin to appreciate the power of its child. Science is the child of man. And to beat off all attempts at compromise, religion has failed and its failure should stand exposed. Science, with its currently successful, listen to this language, with its currently successful pursuit of universal competence through the identification of the minimal, the supreme delight of the intellect should be acknowledged as king. What's that called? The Bible has a word for that. It's called idolatry. It is the worship of man's mind. It's the worship of man's ability, his, his processes, his methods. It's the worship of the one thing that God gave man with which to worship and know him. And it is being used, we see here, to worship something else. And it is being used to dismiss God and replace him. The one thing with which we can know God most is being used by sinful man to throw him in the trash. Finally, all of this resembling, representing and relating, points us to one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. It points us to the fall. We'll get, to that. We'll get there. I didn't want to preach that already, but we'll get to Genesis chapter 3, where we see that man sins, man and woman sin, and the world is broken, and they become sinful, and human beings ever since Adam and Eve have a sinful nature. We see that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, the perfect one, to die for sinners and to be the image of God and to reshape us into God's image. The image of God has not been done away with. It's been marred by the fall, but Christ comes that we might one day express fully and perfectly that very image. So I just want to show you this really quickly. Jesus is the perfect image. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the supreme ruler. Remember, man is to represent God ruling. 1 Corinthians 15, 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. He rules. And he relates to God, the Father, and man with pure love. John 14, 31, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Ephesians 5, 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And here's the one thing that I want to leave you with today, and it's this. If we are to understand the image of God, if we, under, if we are to understand God's intentions for human beings, both in mind and in morality, in function and in relationship, we must look to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. And our salvation consists in us being conformed to his image. And one day, we will rule earth, rule all with him, our brother. Hebrews tells us he is our Lord and he is our brother. And Romans chapter eight tells us we will reign with Christ. Remember the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit for they will inherit the earth for the kingdom of God is theirs. And it goes on to talk about the meek are those who will inherit the earth. All things have been given to Christ and Christ gives those things to us. Do you know him? Do you know this image of God enfleshed? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. 
We thank you that he is the second Adam who never sinned. We thank you that he has been given all rule and dominion. We thank you that he's coming back to reign and rule forever. He'll put all his enemies under his foot. And Father, we thank you that we too will be in his likeness and that we will never, ever, ever revert back to sin, but that we will one day walk with you in perfect holiness, with perfect reason, with perfect affections and a perfect will, that we will see all your creation and marvel at you and walk with the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.